Welcome to the State Support Team 11 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Neal. Today we are joined by Jonathan Martinez. Jonathan is the Senior Director for Law and Policy for the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, leading its efforts to ensure that older adults and people with disabilities have access to the services and supports they need to lead independent, inclusive lives. Welcome, Jonathan. How are you? Hi, doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I got to know you a little bit when we were planning this. I'm really looking forward to uh, our conversation today. Um, You're one of the leading voices in the movement for supportive decision-making. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how you became involved in the movement? Well, first, there's no way I'm going to live up to the leading voice comment, but I'll do my best. Um, Supported decision-making is exactly what you just did. Uh, All supported decision-making is, is getting the information that you need to do the things you need to do in a way that you can understand them and get them done. We all use supported decision-making every day. Every time you ever ask a doctor to explain something in plain language, every time you ask a buddy for advice, every time you look something up, you're using supported decision-making because you're getting support to make the decisions you need to make. Where it comes in with people with disabilities is unfortunately, people with disabilities way too often are thought of that they can't make their own decisions or that when they need help, it's a sign of weakness instead of for every single one of us, it is what it is, a sign of strength, a sign of getting what you need. I mean, think about the cliches we all use. Don't go off half-cocked, make us informed judgment. My dad used to say, if you measure twice, you only have to cut once. It all means get help before you do something. So what supported decision-making really is all about is making sure that people with disabilities have the same opportunities to get the same help to do the same things as everyone else. And it fits in so many areas of life. It's part of education. It's part of employment. It's part of healthcare. And that's a a lot of what I do. I was involved in a case some years ago with a young woman who was, um, her parents were trying to put her in guardianship and she didn't want to be in guardianship. She wanted to live with her friends. They wanted to live, her to live in a group home. She wanted to work in the job she had. They wanted her not to work. So what we showed was this young woman, her name's Jenny, is that Jenny had support. Yes, Jenny had disabilities, but there were people in Jenny's life who she could go to to get support to do things. And we showed, we we talked about them, we talked about what they did. And in the end, uh, Jenny became the first person to go to trial and to beat uh, a guardianship in favor of having the right to use supported decision-making to lead her own life. And from there, it's uh, the last eight years have been a whirlwind of talking to people and going around the country and having people I work with, I represent, all of whom are saying the same thing, which is this. If you give me a chance, if you give me support, if you give me an opportunity to exercise the freedom of choice we all have, maybe I can do something really amazing. And so many people have. And it's, I've, I've been through Ohio and worked with several school districts in Ohio on setting up supported decision-making and other support plans for people with disabilities. I've been uh, so many places. And what we've seen time and time again is what we already know as human beings. When you get what you need, you can do what you have to do. 
Yeah, it's really interesting uh, how new lots of different parts of you know working with peace, people with disabilities are, um, you know, compared to other civil rights kind of movements that have been out there. You know, you had the, the right for women to vote is, you know, 100 years old. You have the, the civil rights movement to, you know, give people from all different backgrounds and races the same rights as citizens in this country. There, there's all these different things. But when you think about, you know, people with disabilities, it didn't really start to, to creep up until the, the 60s or 70s. And there there's still lots of things that are kind of breaking ground and, and happening today. Yeah, history has not been kind to people with disabilities. Uh, quick history lesson. I'm sorry for being a giant geek here. But the first time in the Western world, in the, in the Roman Empire, that they got all the laws in one place was an emperor named Justinian. I'm such a geek. One of my son's names is Justin. And I, we did that on purpose. But the Justinian code put all the laws in, in the empire in one place. So that's 1500 years ago. And one of those laws said, if you're feeble minded, and that's what they call people with disabilities, you had to have a curator, someone over you to make decisions for you. So the first time all the laws were in one place, the first time all the rights were in one place, we started taking them away from people with disabilities. And that's kind of created a culture and expectation. Um, you said it didn't start bubbling up until the 60s and 70s, and that's true, but people with disabilities didn't have the same legal rights as everyone else until 1990. It's only been 31 years that people with disabilities have been considered in a legal sense to be people. In the educational context, it wasn't until 1973 that people with disabilities even had a right to go to school. There was testimony in Congress that there were schools that simply would say, you can't come here. So this, I hesitate to say this is a new movement because people with disabilities have always wanted their rights. But I think it's only been recently that the rest of us have started paying attention. Oh, definitely. And you wrote a book about your experience with Jenny called Supported Decision-Making from Justice for Jenny to Justice for All. And sharing her story helped bring to light a problem that a lot of people didn't even really know existed. Do you think sharing that experience not only educated people, but also got them to care? Because a lot of times it doesn't affect them or they don't even know a person with a disability. I hope so. I, I truly hope so. Jenny got a lot of attention for her case. She was in People magazine. She was in The Times. She was on TV. But what I always say is if we're just telling Jenny's story, it's just a good story. And who cares? I mean, at the end of the day, it's one person's story. What we need to do is show people that there are millions of Jenny Hatches out there. There are millions of people who, if they were just given the opportunities, given support, if they were given that initial respect instead of the expectation that they can't do things. I mean, think of it this way. Um, I stink at math. Confession. I'm terrible at math. But no one says, because you're bad at math, you can't do anything else. What they do is say, you should find a career where you don't do a lot of math. And I did. I used my strengths to get around my limitations. For people with disabilities, it's always been the opposite. It's that people look at their limitations and decide they have no strengths. 
So for someone like Jenny, and more importantly, for everyone else, what we want to do is build on abilities. Don't judge on limitations first. Look at what people can do and use that to help them get around what they can't, just like everyone else. The whole point of the book was not just to tell Jenny's story. The first part of the book does tell her story. But the majority of the book is about supported decision-making, about ways to incorporate it in all of the things that people use every day. There is a chapter on using supported decision-making in special education, a chapter on using it in employment, a chapter on money management, a chapter on healthcare. Because if you think about it, decision-making is something we have to do every day. So what we should be doing is finding the best possible way to do it and the best possible way to empower people to do it. In fact, here I'm going to be a geek again. What I can tell you is we have 40 years of studies that say when people with disabilities make more decisions, when they have what's called more self-determination, they have better lives. Study after study after study says that when people with disabilities have more choice in their life, they're more likely to be independent, employed, healthier, happier, safer, more involved in their communities. So with that, what we should be doing if we want the people in our lives to have the best possible life is to empower them, again, to use their strengths to get around their limitations rather than use their limitations as a reason to take away opportunities. Yeah, that's interesting to me. You know, it, you you wonder sometimes about, you know, what's the motivation for people making these decisions for people with disabilities. And I, I think that's part of why the awareness uh, and, and talking about this is so important because you know, there, there's kind of two aspects, right? There's, there's the aspect of, people that are, are in these, these industries, education, social work, different things like that, that are really interested in helping people. And, and they think, well, I, I, I'm going to do what's best for this person, even though they may not really be thinking about it from the person's perspective, they're looking at their education or, you know, what they've been trained on or taught. And I, I think a lot of times they genuinely feel like, oh, I, I'm really, I'm doing this person a favor by, by, taking away some of this. I'm, I'm making sure that they're safe. There's also the aspect of people that are out to take advantage of people that are elderly or have disabilities. You, know, you hear stories all the time about, about people getting rights taken away and then they come in and you know, can take away their resources or, or whatever like kind of wealth they have. So it, it's, it's important, I think, to, to build that awareness and to make people uh, conscious and knowledgeable about like you said, the research behind that and why this is actually not just better for them, but better, better for everybody. Yeah, you're 100% correct. I, I will tell you this. There are people out to take advantage of people. They are the vast minority. There's bad people out there and they ought to be stopped. I have been involved in cases against legitimately bad people. But here's something I've discovered. And I've been around the country talking to people and working. 99% of people who are seeking guardianship over someone are, are family members, their friends, their loved ones who have the best of intentions. They want to do what's best for the person. The problem is it's cultural. It's, it's kind of expected. And they think that's their only option. No one's ever talking to them about other options. But what you said is so true. They think 
they mean well, and they think what they're doing is the best or only option. Uh, about 100 years ago, the United States Supreme Court um, had a quote that I always use. It, it doesn't have to do with guardianship, but it's so on the nose when it comes to exactly what you're talking about. It goes like this. <laughs> I, hope, I hope your audience just enjoyed my dog howling in the background. Um, I'm going to have to let her out in a moment if she doesn't stop. Um, but uh, what the court said was this, uh, the greatest dangers to liberty lie in the insidious encroachment by people of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding. And what that means to me is that when we mean the most well, we have to be the most careful. We, we can't assume that we know because here, when people have been told their only option is guardianship and they think they're doing the right thing and they rush right to it, they do it what I call reflexively. They don't mean any ill will. Sometimes they're not even really thinking about it because a teacher told them you have to do it. A, a friend, a friend, you have to do this. And they rush in and do it. They think they're doing the right thing. The problem is when we rush in and do things that we think are right without considering or thinking about consequences, bad things can happen. And just like we have 40 years of science that say when people with disabilities make more decisions, have more power, they have better lives, we've got study after study after study on the other side of that too. What we know is that when we take away rights, lives get worse. I mean, here's just one example. Here's a study that's been done three times in the last 10 years called the National Core Indicator Study. What the National Core Indicator Study looked at was the quality of life of people with disabilities. They looked specifically at people with disabilities in what I call an apples to apples measurement, meaning they compared people with mild disabilities to mild disabilities, moderate to moderate, severe, severe, the old phrases. And what they looked at was the impact of certain things on their quality of life. And across the country and across the board and apples to apples, what they found is that people with disabilities who did not have guardians were more likely to live in their own home, to have a job, to have friends, to go around and socialize in their community, to get married and date, to practice the religion of their choice, than people with similar abilities and limitations that had guardians. Does that mean you should never seek guardianship? No, absolutely not. My sister is my godson's guardian, thank God for it. I never tell people what to do. What I do say is this, don't rush. Guardianship will always be there as an option. If it's possible, try to empower, try to give people more opportunities. Maybe that might work. And if it does, what we know is that quality of life can get better. If it doesn't, guardianship's fine. So that's really where Jenny's story comes out. Not that guardianship is evil or that guardians are bad, but that people should have the best opportunities to live their best lives with the most support they can get and that they need to help them achieve. You know, what's interesting is it, it just popped in my head while, while you were talking is, um, you know, a certain case with guardianship has been all over the news lately. And yeah. uh, it, it made me think about, here's someone who doesn't have a disability, talking about Britney Spears at this point, um, but has been locked into guardianship for a very long time and looks to be having an incredibly difficult time getting out is 
is that a common experience for people who get into guardianship? Is it one of those things where it's like the hotel, the hotel California, right? Like you can check in, but you can never leave it. I've used I, that analogy. And I, I've been interviewed a few times on, on Brittany's case. And that's exactly what I said. And when people ask me, what's the easiest way out of guardianship? I always say not going in yeah. because while state laws, including Ohio's say that you can ask the court to let you out of the guardianship, Traditionally, it is very hard because, again, culturally, what people have said is they call getting out of guardianship restoration or restoration of competency or returning to competency. And it's looked at as like being healed. People with disabilities, people with Down syndrome, people with intellectual disabilities, people with mental illness don't get healed. They learn skills. They gain abilities. But so often it's just looked at what I call as a life sentence. Um, really what the laws say, including Ohio, by the way, is that people should have the opportunity to ask the court to get out when they have regained or gained skills. Um, it should be a way station. It should be an opportunity. I had a case in Vermont years ago where we made the guardianship for two years with the idea that in those two years, the guardian would help the person learn those skills that she needed so that she could then get out. And if you looked at guardianship that way, I'd be a huge fan because sometimes people do need a little extra time, but far too often it's exactly what you pointed out and uh, the Eagles analogy works. Um, it's looked at just, this is what happens. And I'll, I'll give you an even scarier concept. The fastest growing segment of people going into guardianship are 18-year-olds, young adults going in at 18, meaning, statistically speaking, they lose all their rights for the rest of their lives. 60 years of dependency, of having the court involved in a person's life, of having someone else having to do everything, instead of the possibility of gaining skills and gaining independence and being the meaningful productive citizen that so many can be if given a chance. That's why I say don't rush. Maybe we can help a person get to the place where he or she can be independent rather than the expectation that they're gonna be in the rest of their lives. And again, Britney Spears is a perfect example. Um, when I was interviewed about her case, she had just won the right to hire her own attorney. And I said, imagine She's been in guardianship for 13 years. She went in 13 years ago. And what we're celebrating today is that she can hire her own attorney. If 13 years ago, Britney Spears had killed someone with an ax, if she was an ax murderer, she would have had the right to hire her own attorney then. So what we're celebrating, what we're watching in Britney Spears is that after 13 years, she finally has the same rights as an ax murderer. Is that what we want for the people in our lives? Or do we want to empower and provide opportunities for people to have their own rights? Right. I'm a, a big systems thinker and I do a lot of my work in complex, complex systems and education. And, and it's, it's crazy to me because usually there's not a simple solution for a complex problem, but this almost sounds like there's a, a very easy, simple thing you could do by changing the, the guardianship laws to make it a, a, you know, maximum amount of time 
with an automatic review or something like that to where it, it shifted the thinking into, into that kind of way that you could legally set it up to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, maybe, maybe not all of them, but uh, is that something that people are working on right now? Yes, and in fact, uh, Jenny's case was 2013. In just the eight years since then, we now have 13 states in the District of Columbia that have overhauled their laws. 13 states, New Hampshire, just about two weeks ago, signed their law, um, have recognized supported decision-making as something the court has to consider before putting someone in guardianship. Your concept was done in Washington, D.C. as well, where every, I think it is three years, someone called a court visitor checks up on the person under guardianship and issues a report, including whether this person still needs guardianship. So there are certainly movements afoot. But the first thing I tell people all around is look at your own laws. And Ohio's law is very good. Ohio's law doesn't use the phrase supported decision making, but Ohio's law comes out and says the court should be looking at less restrictive alternatives. The court should be looking at ways to empower the person. If a guardianship comes into place, the, the guardian should be empowering the person to make his or her own decisions. So if in Ohio, you just looked at the law and followed it as it's written, you'd be getting a long way toward accomplishing exactly what you said. It's again, I call it a cultural expectation. We have to get past the culture that says this is the only option. And no one is free from that culture. I've heard judges across the country just say, oh, I just sign these, it's what's best. I've heard parents say, the teacher told me I have to do it, so what else can I do? Or lawyers say, this is just what we recommend for everyone. We're locked into a mindset from 1500 years ago. And to be real honest with you, 1500 years of saying people with disabilities can't do things is way too long. We can do a lot better. Oh, definitely. And, and that's why I think, you know, these conversations, the book, uh, I saw a great documentary called Crip Camp uh, wow. this summer about a summer camp for people with disabilities and run by hippies that was <laughs> for a lot of people the first time that they'd ever been out of their home or apartment where they lived. And, and just getting people to experience on a human level I think really goes a long way towards opening their mind to the possibility that there could be a different way. So I, I, I appreciate this conversation for doing that. Well, if you, if you watch Crip Camp, I know you have anyone else listening to this should watch it. It's an amazing documentary, but one of the amazing things that came out of that was several people who went to that camp became leaders in the disability rights movement, which just kind of proves that give people an opportunity. And if you watch, you'll see people interviewed. I never knew that I had this ability. I never knew that people could, I, I could do these things. And these are people who later became national leaders. And you said there's not often a simple solution. In that documentary and in so much of what we're talking about, they found the simple solution, which is this, assume abilities. We all do assume that we're all created equal. That's our declaration of independence, isn't it? That we all have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we start there for everyone and we say, instead of how do I protect this person with the best of intentions, instead say, how do I enhance or empower this person, then amazing things can happen.
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm already thinking about just if they, at, at the point where these cases come up, I think if they just looked at it through a different lens uh, instead of what this person can't do, it would be if they looked at it through the lens of what does this person need to be able to do these things that they can't do and what supports are available as, as the first step, rather than jumping all the way to the end, the, the nuclear option of, you know, we're putting them in guardianship, just a simple thing like that could make a huge difference. Amen. Absolutely. Amen, Eric. That is exactly where we should start. Again, some people are going to need guardianship. But it ought to be, as you said, the nuclear option when there's nothing else. I always say this, um, before guardianship, we have to ask a question. What else have you tried? Because if we can, can't answer that question, 98% of the time, yes, a person in a coma absolutely needs a guardian. I get it. But so often, if we don't ask that question, what else have we tried to empower this person? We are missing opportunities. And scientifically speaking, very likely causing that person to have a lesser quality of life. And there is no parent that wants their child to have a lesser quality of life. When parents come to me, I always say, what do you want for your child? And they always say the same three things, independent as possible, happy as possible, safe as possible. So, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about ways to make exactly that happen. Do you know there's a study that says that people with disabilities, specifically women with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but it's extrapolated out, who have more self-determination, who make more choices, are better able to recognize and avoid abuse, safer. So I've told judges across the country, if we want to make people safe, don't take away rights, build awareness and build opportunities. And that's not rocket science. Aren't you more protective of things that you know are yours so if I'm telling you it's your body, it's your life, it's your choice, you get to make it, you're going to be protective of that. And if someone tries to take it away, you're going to fight. Absolutely. So those are things that we can do if we start exactly where you said, with abilities and with rights, instead of jumping to taking them away. Yeah, it's, it's so frustrating, frustrating sometimes that you even think, like that we have to talk about like, hey, people have rights. Like it, it should be, like you said, just it's in the, in, in the constitution. It's what we were founded on. Um, you're doing a series for State Support Team 11 called Education, Employment and Independent Living Through Supportive Decision-Making. Can you give us a preview of what will be covered during that? Absolutely. Um, we're gonna have multiple parts of the series for multiple audiences. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is for anyone, it's for anyone who wants to come, parents, professionals, educators, whoever, it's introducing the concept of supported decision making. It's going to be called From Justice for Jenny to Justice for All. The ideas behind supported decision making and how we can make it happen. All that stuff I talked about, hopefully not boring, I, I try not to be boring, about the science about it. But I'll tell you about Jenny. I'll tell you about Jenny's story. And I'll tell you about how Jenny's story probably fits in with a lot of people's lives. And exactly what we've been talking about, why we shouldn't leap to take away rights. The second part of the series, we're going to divide up into one for educators and professionals and to one for parents. That, that, that lesson is going to be about using supported decision-making in education 
and in employment. The reason why we're dividing is because it's a little different focus. If we're talking to a teacher about incorporating supported decision-making, for example, into the student-led IEP or into transition planning or into interfacing with a OOD, which is your vocational rehabilitation agency, there's a little different focus than talking to a parent about ways to advocate for your child to get the best possible supports and services. So part two of the series is going to be about incorporating the supported decision-making theory we talked about in part one into the context of education and employment. And as I said, there'll be one session for professionals and one for parents. We're then going to have a part three that we're also going to divide up for professionals and parents. And part three is going to be about what I call, broadly speaking, life planning, ways to use supported decision making in things like healthcare and money management and benefits planning, language you can use uh, if you wanted for a power of attorney or an advanced directive. And again, we'll have one geared toward professionals about you know, how you can work with the system and meet your responsibilities and one geared toward parents about how you can advocate. By the way, if you miss one, you can catch the other. The information I'm gonna give you is the same in each. It's just gonna be a little different focused, I think for particular audiences. Part four, we're gonna bring everyone back together again for what I call a sum up, ways to bring everything together. Because one thing I really hope you learn from this series is that this supported decision-making concept goes all the way through life. Getting help to do what you have to do is part of everything we do in life. If there's a teacher, a parent listening who's ever advocated for the student-led IEP, what you're really talking about is supported decision-making. Because the IEP team works with the student to identify supports and services and goals and objectives with the student providing input and the student as the student gets older, having more and more responsibility so that by the end, they're truly working as a team so the student can lead the team and sign off on the IEP. In other words, the team supports, the student decides, supported decision-making. And that goes through into informed choice in vocational rehabilitation. It goes through to person-centered planning in healthcare. It goes through to ABLE accounts in money management or special needs trusts. And then we'll talk in that last one about a way to change that culture that I told you about, the culture of people can't do it, to create a more coordinated culture where programs and projects work together to get the best possible results the most efficiently. And right now I'm talking right to teachers and counselors. You didn't get into this field, a teacher, to do employment counseling. You didn't get into this field to do independent living counseling, but you're required to do it under the transition regulations. What we're gonna talk about is ways for professionals to work with other professionals, with counselors from OOD who didn't get into their field to do education, but they're required to do it. Or case managers from your local board of developmental disabilities who didn't get in their field to do employment, but they're required to do it. Well, if you've got these three entities that have to do similar responsibilities, shouldn't they work together? So that specialists can specialize. Teachers teach, employment counselors focus on employment, independent living specialists focus on that. We call that the culture of coordinated support model. And we did a pilot project in Pickaway County in Ohio, and we've got one going in Perry County. And what it's showing 
is that teachers and counselors and parents and students can gather together, do joint plans and work together to have better results with less work. Isn't that the golden goose? To be more effective and more efficient. And that's what that last one's gonna be about ways we can all work together to create a new and better and more effective culture. I'm, I'm excited for the whole thing. I think it's timely. I think it, it's going to be uh, something that people are hungry for. And it's, it's really going to be a, a big help. If, if you're interested in signing up, uh, check out our website at sst11.org and you'll be able to find the information on, on how to register for that. You know, for, for those that may not be able to, to make the series, um, what, what do you think, if, if you had to think of one strategy for a student with a disability to self-advocate so that they're treated equitably, what do you think is a, a thing that a student could do? Take direct responsibility. Um, for students, I'm told all across the country, and I'm sure it's the case in Ohio too, they feel like they're getting talked at, not talked with or talk to. It's hard when everyone in your life is telling you what you should do or what you can and can't do. I think from as young an age as possible, you should be saying, this is who I am. This is what I want. Let's work together to make it happen. I'm talking directly to students right now. Every teacher you work with, got into this field to make a difference in the lives of their student. They didn't get in this field to say no. They didn't get in this field to tell you that you can't do things. They got into this field to work with you and give you the best, most effective education. And the amazing things happen when students lead. Uh, I did a project in Mansfield, Ohio, that they wrote up in their journal, where students took the lead in their, their IEPs. They, they took the lead in communicating what they wanted, what their goals were, what their dreams were, what they wanted to be in their future. And we had teachers saying they had tears in their eyes because that's what they wanted more than anything else was the student leading, was the student saying, this is what I want, this is who I am, how can I get there? We had one student, uh, just one of the examples in Mansfield, someone said they wanted to be a fashion designer. And the school changed this student's IEP all around, not just about fashion design, but all the things that would go into having your own business. I mean, if you want to be a fashion designer, that's a business. You better be ready to do your taxes. That means we have to have specialized math to help you go through that. You've got to learn about advertising. So they had creative writing, all of the things that teachers want you to do anyway. They did with a focus on what the student wanted to be. And it all happened because the student took the lead. There's a fancy phrase called self-determination that just means taking charge. And what I can tell you is that when you take charge, great things can happen. I don't mean be a dictator and say my way or the highway, but I do mean say, this is who I am. These are the things that I want. This is where I want to get to. How can you help me get there? Yeah. That's, that is my biggest and most basic piece of advice. That idea flows through everything through life. Scientifically speaking, it is the key to a good life for people with disabilities. It's the key to a good life for everyone. Take yeah, it. And, and you think about also, we're always you know, trying to promote student engagement in the, the education profession. What's more engaging than 
like supporting someone and what they really care about. Absolutely. One of the things we're going to talk about, actually, spoiler alert, in that last uh, session is a thing called making a dream board. Uh, it's a way to communicate that a way to have direct student engagement, something a student can take to a meeting and say, this is who I am and this is what I want. That is what we did in Mansfield that led to teachers having tears and counselors and one parent who was written up saying she never knew who her daughter wanted to work at Starbucks. Now her daughter's working at Starbucks. It happened from direct engagement. Yeah. And, and it's funny because my next question was going to be, you know, how can teachers and caregivers and others be an ally when it comes to supportive decision making? It sounds like we kind of just answered it. It's it's really about finding out what they are interested in, what they care about and helping to make that happen. Yeah, it's why you got in. I mean, I know being a teacher. Good God, I've talked to so many teachers and sometimes like in all fields, it just feels like things are getting just ripped out of you you know, all the paperwork, all the time, all the meetings, and you lose sight of why you got in in the first place. But my God, I have talked to so many teachers who did exactly what you just said. Support that idea, engage in that idea. And, you know, we're going to talk about this in the series, but create new ways of looking at IEPs, new ways of looking at supports and services that are exactly what's supposed to happen and consistent with science and studies and the Department of Education best practices, but that makes such a huge difference. And I've had teachers tell me, you know, it's like all that paperwork, all that time, all those regulations and the secrets, what I've always known. That's why I got in. I wanted to work directly with students and parents. And when we do that, great things can happen. Definitely. So if people would like to find out more about you, your book, the work you do, where should they go? The book's on Amazon. And, and we did that intentionally. Um, I'll, I'll make a confession. Is um, We originally submitted the book to a publisher who didn't want to publish it because we used contractions. And we didn't have big, like specific ways of citing scientific articles. And I said, people use contractions and people want analogies and people want real lessons. So it's self-published for a reason. So we could make it cheap. <laughs> There's a, a textbook I co-wrote that's like a hundred bucks. And I recommend people don't buy it. Um, it's for graduate level students. People who need to know about supported decision-making are the people who use it every day, are the, the people with disabilities, the parents, the teachers, the counselors. And so I wrote that thing. I put it on Kindle. <laughs> and the whole idea was to give people access to information. And it's, in a very real sense, it's the most commonsensical thing we know empower people and good things happen. But the reason for the book isn't just to tell Jenny's story. It's for the rest of it, to give you practical, usable information about ways to incorporate this into IEP plans, into vocational rehabilitation, into person-centered planning, and, and ways that we can make happen what we've always wanted to happen for our children, for our students, for the people in our lives. Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, the making the book about accessibility accessible. It's living your brand. Yeah. I appreciate that about you. I, I say right in the beginning, this book is not for academics. 
It's for you. It's for people who have to, people on the front lines, you know, uh, people who come to me and they hear me speak and they go, great, Jonathan, I'm all in. What do I do? The theory is wonderful. And I will warn you that first session we're going to have is all about theory. And you're going to say, great, what do I do with this? That's the second, third, and fourth session. Right. But if we can come to that agreement in the beginning, that self-determination, that independence, that decision-making are good things and lead to better lives. And Jenny's story is the perfect example of that. And you'll see yourself in her. And I've actually got excerpts from testimony in the trial where you'll go, oh, yeah. Like when someone said that, uh, that taking away rights is kind of like taking away in the eyes of society, a person's existence. Because if I have a guardian that does everything for me, then everyone's looking to the guardian and not me. I'm like a ghost. You'll say to yourself, oh my God, I never thought of it that way because culture told us that's the only thing we could do. Well, there are other options that can empower. And I hope you'll see yourself in her story or your loved one, your parent, your friend, your brother, your daughter, your son, your daughter, your student. And then the rest of it is all about making it happen so that it's not just a concept that self-determination is a good thing. It is, here's how we get there. And that's the important part. Jonathan, I, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your story. And I'm really looking forward to your series. So thank you. It's been an absolute honor. I can't wait to work with uh, the Support Team 11. And I'm looking forward to interacting with anyone. And I'm going to tell you right now, if anyone has any questions, if you want to reach me, uh, my email will be all over the presentation, but here it is right now. It's a JG as in Jonathan Gerald Martinez, as in more than one martini 15 at Gmail. So JG M A R T I N I S one five at gmail.com. Email me anytime. Tell me I'm full of it or tell me I want to know more. Because the only way we do well is when we communicate more. And I'd love to communicate with you. Well, that's your, that's your chance right there. Make sure you reach out if you have those questions. That wraps up this episode of the State Support Team 11 podcast. If you'd like to know more about who we are and what we do, check us out on our website, sst11.org. Contact us by phone at 614-445-3750 or follow us on Twitter at SSTRegion11. Until next time, I'm Eric Neal. Thanks for listening.